0: Women Success China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from Greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Quo and Jason McRonald for editing. If you're a loyal listener or just happened upon us, We love it if you show your support by hitting subscribe. There are some new developments and surprises in the pipeline that we don't want you to miss. Now back to regularly scheduled programming, we're here this week with Rebecca Fannin, a leading expert on global innovation, and this has taken root as both an author and media entrepreneur. Rebecca in early September of this year released her book, Tech Titans of China, and we dive into tech leadership. We also unpack why AI is the next prominent battleground between the U.S. and Chinese superpowers. It's a snappy episode. We cover a lot of ground in a quick amount of time. So listen in hi everyone and welcome to ta for ta we are very excited today to have rebecca Fannin, founder of silicon dragon ventures as well as the author of the newly released book tech titans of china so thank you so much for coming on the show today
1: well thank you i'm very glad to be on the show
0: and i think what we usually like to do is just have guests give us a little bit more of a a highlights reel of their career you know who are you? What makes you so successful? Where where have you found inspiration? And what's your career path look like?
1: Right. Well, I'm originally from Southern Ohio. And as soon as I graduated from college, my father and mother were both academics. So I was very much plugged into the academic world from the very start and traveled internationally with them growing up. So My career path since then kind of followed this adventuresome trail um, and curiosity trail that was kind of established way back in Southern Ohio. I started my career in magazines in New York City and worked for several years for leading publications there. Ended up becoming the editor of International Business Magazine and went to Hong Kong for the first time in 92. uh, And... From there, I got an introduction to what was happening in Asia and what was happening in Hong Kong prior to the handover and all the issues now with Hong Kong. But uh, then I uh, from International Business Magazine, I began to spend more time on Asia, mm-hmm. and I caught the entrepreneurial boom just right happening in China. I was in Silicon Valley working for a magazine called Red Herring, which was the dot-com magazine of its time as the international news editor. And I started covering uh, Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong just as this entrepreneurial boom lifted off from China. So I caught the timing just right. I worked from Beijing. I worked from Shanghai. I worked from Hong Kong. I got to interview some of these tech titans in China very early on, even before they were well-known people like Jack Ma of Alibaba and Robin Lee of Baidu, and a whole cast of characters who became billionaires. It's been very exciting. From there, I got inspired by the entrepreneurs that I was interviewing in China. And I figured, well, if they're doing it, then maybe I should try to do it. And the whole media world was turning upside down anyhow. So I decided to a farm for my own venture, which is Silicon Dragon, and that is a media business and an events business that we run globally. Where we host events in innovation hubs all around the world, and we also publish a newsletter, and we do videos and publish thought leadership papers. And basically, uh, my book writing is really is the center of all that. So I think, you know, content is very important. You have to have the content, you have to have the knowledge, you have to have the uh, contacts in the field in order to break through. And I think that's been uh, a key factor in my own success as a media entrepreneur and an author.
0: Actually, let's let's focus that a little bit. I know you got your start in journalism, but you are quoted saying it's an exciting time to be a media entrepreneur rather than just a journalist writing articles at a desk. And I kind of want to dig into that a little bit more. And why do you believe this to be true? What is so dynamic and exciting about being a media entrepreneur nowadays?
1: As a media entrepreneur, you can set your own agenda. And I think today, the individual journalist identity is just as important as the medium that they write for. Because of social media, this has escalated the identity of individual journalists. And so you can have your own brand name, you can have your own media outlet. It's much easier to do today because of digital media. Now, there is a downside to this too, that some people think they can just go on and be a journalist just because they can go online and create content. Well, that's not just it. I basically, I was trained as a journalist. I've always been a journalist. And that's my whole lens on the world. I look at things from a very kind of in-depth journalistic way and try to create content that's um, that's actually very relevant and impactful. And
0: let's actually talk about, you know, When you're looking for the next new thing to cover, you are oftentimes saying that you're taking a grassroots approach and you want to get close to the source. Can you maybe tell us about some examples in your most recent book or in some of the media that you create for Silicon Dragon Ventures about how you get close to the source? How do you rely on that journalistic instinct to to do what you do?
1: Right. I think this is one real benefit of being an individual entrepreneur that you in the media space that you can go out and travel and meet the people that are creating these new ideas. And that's not something that you can do readily. If you're working for a major national publication, for instance, getting Away from the office and getting outside and getting to the people and contacts and interviewing them face to face is something that I've been able to do as a media entrepreneur with Silicon Dragon. And I've interviewed many, many entrepreneurs in China, in Beijing, in Shanghai, in Shenzhen, and elsewhere, in you know, Hong Kong, Taipei, uh, pretty much uh, across Asia, and. It's been very rewarding to hear their stories up close and personal. And it's something you can't substitute. You cannot substitute that personal contact of doing an in person interview and actually being in the environment that you're covering. So you can't be in New York sitting at a desk and hope to capture the entrepreneurial energy and the spirit that's happening in China today. It's impossible. And I think. I've actually been able to go to these places and be part of the story and also report on the story.
0: What I really want to also know is, you know, you have so many different types of media. You have the podcast, the articles, videos, all incorporated into this, this one platform. How do you think Silicon Dragon has brought together the U.S. and China? Is there something a part of building this relationship and creating transparency around ideas that, looking back, having built this entire platform that you're most proud of?
1: It's interesting that you asked that because I think our events business has created this dialogue of U.S. and China that really didn't exist in events before. Now, we do events in Beijing and Shanghai and New York and Silicon Valley, L.A., London, and elsewhere. And these events bring together people on both sides of the world, both sides of the Pacific, and get them talking to one another. And that has created a community of people who are interested in China. Maybe they're not even doing business in China yet, but they're interested in China. And I I think these events have been A really important part of my entire platform and it's interesting too that the events can create content as well so if you have a panel talking about these topics like we just did in San Francisco last Friday September 27th where they talked about their views of the US China tech Cold War and what it means and what they think the impact is that kind of information directly from the source at a panel that we host and organize is something that gives us content that no one else has. And I think that's really important part of the whole package.
0: And how do you get people at the source for these events? Is it because you've traveled back and forth, you know, so many times? Or how do you get these people at the source? What's that? What's that magic key? I
1: I think as a journalist, it helps to be able to connect with them on a journalistic level. If they have breaking news or some development, I cover it. And we have a weekly newsletter where we cover these issues. So I've gone to know many of them over 15 years of covering this topic of US and China and the tech world and innovation and entrepreneurship and startups. So many of them. Uh, I've known for a long time, but I also try to keep up to, up to date with the, the newcomers. It, it's a changing cast, and you have to be out in the market to know who's shaking things up now and for the future. So, for instance, I've worked on the Forbes Asia 30 Under 30 issue. So I profiled a number of those uh, young entrepreneurs who are coming up and having an impact and did a lot of research throughout the region of who they are and selecting them. So it's things like that that help you uh, know who would be the leading experts to invite to speak on these panels and who can actually contribute a lot and can speak well and not be afraid to share their opinion, their viewpoint.
0: Now, I want to switch gears a bit and move from what you do in a holistic sense in the ecosystem you create with Silicon Dragon Ventures and more narrowly define into The book that you just released, Tech Titans of China, really exciting. I want to first get into the process of writing that book. And, you know, you've written three books. When did it when do you feel like it's the right time to to dive into a topic matter very deeply and develop a book around some idea?
1: My first book, Silicon Dragon, was published in 2008. And I think a decade in the tech world is a lifetime. There's been so many changes in the tech world over the past decade. And China has been front and center of many of these changes. Just the speed, uh, the dynamism of China's tech sector, how far it's advanced over the past decade, was really one of the reasons that I felt I needed to write Tech Titans of China. Silicon Dragon was more uh, a profiles of the leading entrepreneurs at that time who were mainly in the dot-com world. Uh, They were the founders of Alibaba, the founders of Baidu, the founders of the Facebook of China, the founders of the Amazon of China. Now, today, there's a whole new group of innovators that have emerged and new sectors that China is creating, new business models that we don't even have in the U.S. yet So Tech Titans of China, my new book, covers this new tech sector that has emerged from China and how it's really shaking up the world today. And I identify many of the tech sectors that I think are having the most impact and that will matter the most going forward. You asked me also about the research efforts that that went into the book. Yeah. So people ask me all the time, how long did it take you to write this book? I tell them 15 years and because that, yeah, that is the research framework that you need to be able to write intelligently about a topic. And I think I've been covering this field for 15 years and I know the trends and I've been following the trends regularly during that time and going to China quite regularly, too staying with that grassroots model. So I think it's a matter of um, staying with the topic, continuing to do interviews uh, with people in person, continuing to do events that bring you closer to the community. And all of those things contribute to writing the book. Now, the actual writing is, to me, the easier part. It may sound crazy, but it really is. After you have all the research done you've gathered all that, uh, you've created a framework for the book, and you know where you're going with the book. If you've done all that, the writing uh, should flow fairly naturally, as long as you're willing to put in the time and the sweat toward doing it day after day after day for about five Was there months. ever
0: a large research gap in Tech Titans of China that took a significant amount of time to fill relative to the rest of the framework that you were building?
1: I think I realized when I was writing the introduction and the leading chapters that set out the whole framework of this idea that China has gone from copying now to innovating, I realized that I needed to spend more time with the newcomer companies. So I went back to China. I spent a month there, interviewing them all, visiting all the companies, all the newcomer companies, and getting the latest information about them. And that was actually a very productive trip that added a lot of content on the grassroots level that many other authors don't get if they're just sitting in New York or sitting in San Francisco trying to write about this. So going there, getting the story, and doing this on a grassroots level and spending the time that it takes to set up all these interviews and go to each one of these companies, it was a massive effort, but I think it really paid
0: off with the book. And let's actually talk about some of the content of the book. What are some of the worrying indicators of the future technology leadership of America? And this is something that you expand on in, in many different dimensions over the course of the book, but would love to hear the synopsis from you.
1: I think that there are many indicators that show that China is advancing very rapidly and catching up to the US. If you look at patent applications and patents enforced, that's one area. If you look at venture capital investment and venture capital funding, that's another area. If you look at national R&D spending, another area. If you look at the number of engineers, the number of supercomputers, and many other indicators as well, but those are the ones that I think are very indicative of where things are going. Now you could say, yeah, there's several other indicators too, more anecdotal. China exploring the dark side of the moon, China getting into genetics and cloning, uh, and China getting into flying passenger drones, things that are really quite advanced, uh, facial recognition. These are all things, areas where China is pushing ahead and the government is uh, behind some of this activity really from a top-down level in directing some tech innovation to come forth, to setting an agenda, to creating even funds that will invest in innovation. So things like the Made in China 2025 policy to push China forward and to become a leader in technology globally. This is one real important driver of China's tech economy. I think, yes, you could argue that China has an unfair advantage, that China stole technology, that China did not pay attention to intellectual property protections, that China blocked our leading U.S. companies. But I think uh, these... Indicators of China's growth and progress show that it's just, its ambitions are really unstoppable. No matter whether there's a US China tech and trade war or not, China's ambitions are really unstoppable. They want to become
0: a global champion in technology. And of the, all these areas of potential friction, potential standoff between the US and China, you really hone into AI as a prominent battleground for these two tech superpowers, so to speak. I mean, you have said that you, you know, the U.S. has long held AI talent and research, but with this plan to create a 150 billion AI market, China is combining business with government in so many different dimensions to really make this a key battleground. I was wondering if you could expand on that. A little bit more for listeners and, and the thesis that you're making here. I
1: think U.S., and it's agreed by the experts that the U.S. has the global leadership in AI research and development. There's no question of that. But China is getting ahead in implementing AI into many aspects of daily life, such as finance, you know, FinTech, facial recognition, speech recognition, uh, things like the Sesame credit system that is kind of a big brother watching, watching all and recording all and uh, analyzing that in an AI way to create scores for individual citizens. These are things where China is implementing uh, faster than the U.S. Not to say that the U.S. will ever have a social credit system, but it's just one area where China is using AI and it in a different way than the U.S. is. And so it's more so that
0: China's taking the technology of AI and utilizing it in a different way, but in a way that still is threatening to the U.S. Or would you, would you phrase it a different way? Well,
1: I think it's, yeah, I think in some cases we do see this as a threat that China is getting ahead in, in not just AI, but in other tech sectors as well. And Yes, the government spending and the venture capital spending in these sectors and the number of unicorns uh, in many of these leading tech sectors is something that is somewhat of a, um, an alarming situation for the U.S. that we see this. We see this happening. So the leading AI company in finance uh, is since time it's developed from Shenzhen, and it's in facial recognition. It's the number one unicorn in AI worldwide, and it's funded by uh, both U.S. and uh, Chinese and Asian companies. So I think Sense time has a chance to um, become very impactful in things like autonomous driving, so since time has linked up with Honda, for instance, to do self-driving testing, Baidu, the search company, is betting its future on AI and has gotten into autonomous driving in a big way and has partnered with leading automakers on developing this this and implementing this technology. I think Baidu has also has another brand uh, extension, which is a little bit like Alexa in that is for smart homes, switching off lights, switching off speakers, switching off heaters and other devices in your home uh, through AI empowered uh, systems. So these are all areas where China is putting AI to work. And I think
0: you bring up this point, you know, that there's almost this divergence and there's this mutual exclusivity of both the U.S. and China. And I mean, let's, focus on some recent news, do you think Americans will regret banning Chinese IPOs? I know you've commented on this and would love to hear what you think. Well,
1: look, this hasn't happened yet, and that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. Uh, I think it would be certainly a shift in the market in that Chinese companies then would go public in Hong Kong or go public in Shanghai instead of the U.S. Now, the U.S. has always been looked up to by these Chinese tech entrepreneurs and their investors as the trophy. That's the prize, right? You know, it's a real big, high-profile public offering at NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. It's very exciting for them, and, you know, they can get the valuations that they need here in the U.S. too. But if this block goes through, they will look to Hong Kong, And Hong Kong is already uh, going after uh, tech IPOs. In fact, last year they took public two leading tech companies that I write about in my new book, Tech Titans of China. They took public uh, Xiaomi, the smartphone maker, and also Meituan, the super app that is in on-demand delivery. These are two major, major companies that got large valuations out of Hong Kong. If we uh, stop this cross border flow, it will have a major impact. If you look at the number of Chinese IPOs in the US last year alone, it was 32, and many of those are in the tech sector. So I think this is an area to watch. Uh, It will be, it hasn't happened yet, and it might happen, but if it does, it will have a very big impact on. Chinese companies and their valuations and their ability to raise capital. It could slow down the China tech economy altogether if this happens.
0: You really think the biggest part of the potential fallout will be for the Chinese IPOs in the sense that it's not as much of a reciprocal action compared to, for example, trade. When we look at the trade versus the tech where they have very different dynamics at play.
1: Right, right. Well, in, in this case, look, <laughs> these Chinese companies can just go to Hong Kong instead. Or they could just go to Shanghai instead on the new NASDAQ-style board. <clears> they <throat> won't have the kind of high-profile impact that NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange have, but you know, it, is, it is an option. With the trade war, there aren't so many of these other options. It's like, we are, we're offering soybeans and pork. <laughs> uh, and, you know, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, so you see what I mean.
0: There hasn't been a level of cross-collaboration, but it's also very easy to say that there aren't many U.S. companies doing well in China or vice versa. And from your breadth of experience, is it possible to point out maybe an example or two where a company has shined cross-border, has thrived has been able to be incredibly successful
1: yeah i think the latest example comes from ByteDance dance and their 15 second video app tiktok where you record you do a video selfie and, and you have music in the background and often it's some sort of silly stunt or some goofy stunt uh, and they're only 15 seconds long and this uh Video app has gone global from China, and it's also in China, too. So it's one of the few that has really done cross-border, been able to go global from China. Another company uh, that has gone international, if not global, is Xiaomi, the smartphone maker. It's become the number one smartphone uh, brand in India, and it's very popular throughout Asia. Uh, now we don't; it's not so popular here in the U.S., uh, but it is known. Um, so I think we're going to start to see these Chinese tech companies going global. Um, another good example, I suppose, would be Alibaba and its cross-border selling and marketing platform of U.S. and China, where Alibaba is helping. Uh, U.S. businesses and U.S. brands to sell in China, and to market in China. Uh, That has been a key driver of cross-border flows. And the average American knows Alibaba. And so that's one of these uh, brands that has gone global from China.
0: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
1: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that.
0: Right. And as you also point out, it's not just about the U.S. and China. It's also been the China flow of technology, intellectual property towards Southeast Asia, right? Right.
1: Uh, I think the U.S. is pushing back and restricting China investment in technology that is critical to America's future. And we're seeing the Chinese investors turning instead to Southeast Asia. So if you look at Alibaba, Alibaba, actually, its deal to buy MoneyGram was blocked. Uh, These are in part because of new regulations that are put in by Washington, D.C. in in the past uh, two years, but it just increased scrutiny as well over China tech investments in the U.S. This was a very big driver of the China tech push of investing in U.S. technology companies. So Uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent were in the forefront of of investing in these uh, American startups, and they invested in some of the biggest uh, and leading brands such as Tesla, Uber, Lyft, Magically, and so forth. Uh, So I think now today, uh, they're no longer doing these kind of big trophy deals. Uh, They're doing much more strategic, smaller minority kind of investments, or they're turning to Southeast Asia or Israel for uh, their next deals. These Chinese tech companies, they do want to go international. They need this for growth. So if the U.S. is pushed that back, then they'll look
0: elsewhere. And they are looking elsewhere now. And that's interesting. I, I think that, you know, in the juxtaposition of what we talk about, where they're able to find investment opportunities elsewhere, but there might still be a reliance on the U.S. market for financing. Do you see a tension there? Yes, I think the venture capital model is also
1: being disrupted because of the U.S.-China tech cold war or cold conflict, if you want to call it, or SPAT. Uh, Some people say war is too strong a word, but uh, so we'll just call it conflict for now. Uh, But I think uh, we are starting to see uh, venture capital funds that were investing in both the U.S. and China and doing cross-border deals and collaborative deals, uh, now they're restructuring so that they're doing just the U.S. or just China. So they have—I can think of two funds uh, from China that have restructured and now just doing China. Uh, that is a major impact of new restrictions from Washington, D.C. on this cross-border flow from China. And I think it's having an impact in in Silicon Valley. If you're a startup and you're looking for your next round of financing, it might be more difficult to get capital today, particularly from China. And you may have to look elsewhere. And I think this is playing out right now in, in this sector. And I think it could be really tough for startups to get funding uh, again from China,
0: right? And I mean this this is point you know you've received a lot of praise for also being critical in your book Tech Titans of China's from a policy angle, not just say a tactical and business angle. So when i mean policy talking about trade, we're talking about tech, we're talking about five G. Why was it so important for you to to have this nuanced view from so many different angles when, when writing this book.
1: I, I think you can't write this about this topic in a vacuum. This topic and issue has become mainstream. It's become uh, an issue that's debated a lot today. And it's important to understand the policy issues behind it. And these policies are driving the shape of tech in the future. And so you can't write about it in a vacuum. You really have to have that broader framework, which I did put in the book. And I thought it was very important to have in there.
0: And so what's it been like promoting the book? Has there been any surprises in the reactions that you've received? Right.
1: I've done a lot of TV interviews, uh, CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg, uh, and some radio interviews have been great. The radio interviews, which are the longer interviews, are really wonderful because you get a chance to actually discuss the topic. The TV interviews, which are very uh, abrupt and short, uh, can be very challenging because uh, you'll get asked uh, questions such as, aren't they stealing our stuff? And that, that's very hard to answer in a soundbite. Uh, so, yeah, they're definitely uh, uh Interesting uh, reactions by the uh, media uh, out there, particularly uh, some uh, some more, uh, uh, well, national TV networks, I would have to say, are really on this idea of, aren't they stealing? Aren't they stealing our stuff? And I think an important issue is, what is the U.S. doing in response? What is the U.S.? And I like to get this message out that, look, The U.S. needs to respond. Well, actually, we're responding, but we're responding in a negative way by just pushing China back. We're pushing China back, and that that pushing China into a corner makes China more reliant on its own technology. So I think uh, it's better if we can somehow work together and work through these issues and come up with a level playing field that benefits both sides and that helps global innovation altogether. So I want to get that message across in various media interviews that I've done. So sometimes getting that message across is not easy when you're on for two minutes or five minutes. Right. Is that ever
0: frustrating when you only have so little space and you know that someone is really trying to get a very specific angle on your book that took 15 years to to research?
1: You have to go go with the punches. that's, that's That's the media world today. And yeah, you have to accept that as part of the whole exercise. Uh, you write, you research a book, you come up with the idea, you research it, you write it, you promote it. You're out there in the media world. I'm going to be speaking at Brookings Institution uh, next week in Washington, D.C. And uh, that's going to be very exciting because I'm sure I'll get a different angle from Washington, D.C. than I have so far in New York or Boston or Toronto or Silicon Valley.
0: So uh, I'm braced for DC next week. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. So I think I have one more question for you, Rebecca. And I like to ask this for most guests on the show. You know, what's one piece of advice that you've received in the past that you've found yourself given to someone recently? And I think the reason I like to ask this is we get given a lot of advice over the span of careers, but... Oftentimes, I think the advice that sticks with you is the advice that you find yourself giving to others. So has there ever been that you know piece of advice that someone gave you and has kind of stuck with you? When I interviewed
1: Jack Ma, when I first interviewed Jack Ma of Alibaba in 2006 in Hangzhou at his office then, which is not anywhere near like his corporate headquarters today, but he told me that one of his uh, success. Uh, secrets was that not really a secret, but uh, that he really uh, was the most successful when he is himself and he's relaxed and he can have a good result. And I thought, yeah, Mm. that's right. That's really right. Look, if you're yourself, you're relaxed and you have a good result. And so I've told other people that and I truly believe in that. And I do try to follow that advice. I, I have instilled that in my own philosophy toward life and my career.
0: I really like that.
1: I would like to say that the book is being translated into many other languages and uh, including into Mandarin in China. And so the book will have some a bigger impact um, beyond the English-speaking world, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and I think uh, that this is a topic that is a perennial topic. It's not going to go away. I think, uh, you know, the timing is right uh, that for this book, um, my first book was way too early, Silicon Dragon. Nobody believed in the idea of a Silicon Dragon from China, but today they definitely believe in it. So I think Tech Titans of China is finally got the timing right.
0: Great. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you, Rebecca. I mean, you have such a breadth and depth of knowledge around Silicon Valley, Shen valleys you talk about, as well as the U.S. and China and the different ways that they relate to technology and investment. So this has been a pleasure. And I know we've really only scratched the surface, but trying to get everybody out there and read Tech Titans of China, it's new, it's fresh, it's very current. And thank you for the time for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. It was a true pleasure. Thank you again. <laughs>
0: with what you're hearing hit subscribe and show us some love we're also getting more active on twitter providing content and a pov that really supports and elevates what you're already hearing here our twitter handle is at like retweet engage in the conversation ta women success china is a proud member of the Seneca network many thanks to kaiser quo for producing and jason mcronald for ending. And until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.